I'm Aideen Finnegan and this is In The News from The Irish Times. Today we have a slightly different offering for you. So perhaps you've been plugged into the news cycle all over Christmas, but chances are if you're like most people you'll have tuned out or maybe even partaken in a complete digital detox and if you did, fair play to you. But bearing that in mind, there's been a good few events of note over the, the Christmas period from, you know, obviously the obscene hospital overcrowding situation to celebrity deaths. You might have seen chatter online about stories you're only half familiar with. So we're here to tie everything up and get you up to speed as January begins in earnest for most people next week. And by we, I mean myself, Connor Pope, and our newest addition to the In The News family, Irish Times journalist Bernice Harrison. Hello there. So as Bernice enters stage left, Connor makes... His exit, sort of. Exit pursued by a bear, I think is the phrase. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm off to return to my full-time role as a consumer affairs correspondent in the Irish Times. And I have to say, I'm sad to be leaving the podcast. But I think the cost of living crisis is really such a profound story for our times. And I think it's important that the Irish Times devotes as much coverage to it as we possibly can. So that's why I'm going. Makes sense, makes sense. We'll miss you, of course. But this is the Instagram version of a soft launch of you leaving because there's one or two episodes more that you'll be on. And of course, you'll be back as a contributor. Hopefully. Often, hopefully. I'm sure. And um, you know what? It's always much easier, Aideen, to answer the questions than I think than yeah. it is to, yeah. ask, to ask them. Because to ask them, you have to be silent and you have to be patient and you have to let people speak, whereas when you're answering the questions, you just waffle on. Oh, well, well, you do you do good <laughs> waffling. And Bernice, you will be co-hosting the podcast with myself. That's it. And uh, welcome aboard. Thank you so much. Well, how was your Christmas? Did you, did you get struck down by the Christmas plague? Well, I did. Uh, the 12 days of Christmas. Oh. Nearly the full 12 days, I'd say. I was spluttering and coughing and with that sort of random virus thing that so many people seem to have that made us all, you know, dust down our COVID tests that we hadn't used. I certainly hadn't used a COVID test in months and months and months. Found the box, gave it a go, no COVID, but still that weird, weird virus. Connor, did you escape? No, I did escape. I was entirely healthy wow. for most of the Christmas, for indeed for all of the Christmas. I'm a little bit concerned to be sitting opposite <laughs> for a <laughs> um, No, I, w- I was fortunate and touch wood, uh, hopefully Nobody in the house either? No, nobody in the house got sick. We did have a couple of COVID cases in the run-up to Christmas though, so... It ties in very nicely to kind of the biggest story, which is the hospital overcrowding. And obviously we have this triple-demic of COVID, flu-like symptoms, or, or actually... The flu. So obviously we had record numbers this week of 931 people awaiting admission. We have the Minister for Health asking people in hospitals, asking people to avoid EDs when that's very difficult. And uh, we're going to hear from Phil Nihay now, who was speaking to Virgin Media News during the week. Weights on trolleys of three to four, five days in some instances. Patients for whom there are no trolleys available. Care being delivered in the back of ambulances. The hospitals can't cope. That's clear. So we now have to introduce public health measures that prevent the spread of respiratory illnesses. Bernice, Phil was suggesting, uh, she goes on to say that it, it should be mandatory mask wearing because asking people to leave it up to themselves to decide whether they need to wear a mask or yeah, not is not working. It's sort of puzzling why people aren't actually wearing a mask right at the moment. I, I've just come in on the Lewis and I was the only person on the entire Lewis wearing a mask. So on the one hand, we're seeing these headlines. We know respiratory illnesses are circulating so widely to the population and people won't wear a mask in crowded settings. And the Lewis sounded like a hospital waiting room <laughs> with all the coffin and spluttering going on. The windows are open, but big deal. The week started off with this story and it's been in the headlines every single day because, uh, on t- you know, nobody wants a record in, in this space. Nobody, you know, nobody wants us to reach record numbers at any point. 
Uh, on Tuesday, there was 931 patients on trolleys. On Wednesday, that had dropped to eight, uh, 838. Uh, on Thursday, the IMO said, you know what, it's going to be around 1,000. So... The numbers come from, incidentally, they come from the INMO, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation. And Phil Hay is, you'd have to say, a terrific champion for her people, for her, the, her, her members. What the numbers reflect, of course, is the bigger problems in the system. It's not just about the emergency department. All those people on trolleys, if you think of it, they've been through, as she said, they've been sitting on chairs for hours, they've been through, they've seen a nurse, they've been triaged, they've seen a doctor. They have been judged to be really sick. And there they are on a trolley. And we knew this was going to happen. That's the other thing. This 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 started in September. There was, you know, the Minister for Health Command saying, oh, you know, there's going to be a twindemic. And, you know, once you hear a cutesy word put on anything and the twindemic was going to be the flu and, and COVID. So we're going to be under terrible pressure at Christmas. And once you hear a tw- uh, this cutesy word, you think, oh, we're in trouble here. And then a couple of months later, it had become this triple-demic. And I'm worried now, demic is going to be like gate and we're going to sort of jam it on to words to try <laughs> to make sense of them. And a winter plan was put in place. Clearly the winter plan has failed. And there seems to be now a sense, um, there's a sense of, oh, well, you know, sort of, what can you do? Except, as the minister said, uh, reported in the paper on Thursday, he said, you know, it would be much better if consultants would just start working a bit more. So, you know, that was throwing paraffin into that particular fire. So it's as if we're kind of nearly waiting for this, this January period to be over and then phew, flu season will be gone, COVID will have decreased, RSV, there might be a handle on that and it'll be start the cycle again. All over again. Mm. Connor, do you think restrictions and maybe not even restrictions, maybe just things like mask wearing, mandatory mask wearing, do you see that in our short term future? I hope so. But I thought there was an interesting poll carried out by one of the radio stations yesterday and today. So in very recent times and 10,000 people asked the question or answered the question, would you be willing to wear a mask in public again? And 52% of them said no. no. And I am just baffled by the 52% because what's the problem with wearing a mask? I mean, it's not the most fun thing to do, but it's not a desperately uncomfortable thing. And if it stops you or the people sitting near you getting sick, well, then it's just a complete no-brainer. Yet there is this reluctance to wear masks. And I don't know if some of that is because of the politicisation of mask wearing that we've seen in other parts of the world. Or I don't know if there's some kind of psychological thing that people think, no, no, we're through COVID now. COVID is gone. We're not going to go back to where we were. And maybe that's behind some of the reluctance. But it doesn't make any sense to me that people will sit on the Lewis, as Bernice says, without wearing a mask because the mask protects you and as we know as we were so sick of hearing it protects the people around you. The other thing that I think is important to remember is that it's easy when we're talking about a situation like this and a crisis like this to get bogged down in the numbers and 940, 970 record breaking numbers. Behind every single one of those numbers there's a human being and there's a sick human being and an awful lot of those people are very elderly and the idea that you'd have a person in their 80s who is unwell enough to present at an emergency department sitting in a chair are lying on a trolley for 30, 40, 50 hours is just appalling. And again, as Bernie said, this was all so wearyingly predictable. We knew this was going to happen. And the plans that were put in place by the Department of Health, 
by the HSE were not fit for purpose and that is why we're in this crisis now. And it is simply not good enough that we as a state and as a society say, oh listen, we'll get through the winter, we'll get through January, we'll get through the, 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 fl- the, the, the flu season and we'll be okay again. It's not good enough, it needs to change. And it, I, I think everybody accepts that it needs to change. Well, I think what crystallised the thing for me uh, this week was I was chatting to uh, my neighbour who's a woman in her 90s, uh, lives alone, fantastic woman. Um, She's been sick all over Christmas and she said, I just want you to promise, promise, promise that you will never call an ambulance for me, no matter what happens, because I don't want to go in to sit in a hospital on a chair. I'm afraid of the emergency department. I'd rather be in my bed. And that story has to be replicated in so Mm. many homes around the country where elderly people are terrified. Someone of that age knows that, you know, they probably think about their mortality a lot and think about the practicalities of it. And that's actually a very sobering thought. Speaking of people in their 90s, Conor Pope... I'm not Pope that old, AD. <laughs> Connor Pope, Pope correspondent. We had a Pope pass away. We did, we did. And um, his funeral was held yesterday. That's right, Pope Benedict, uh, the Pope Emeritus. Um, emeritus, excuse me. Or Shadow Pope, which I've heard him referred to, which is sort of spooky. Yeah, anyway. yeah. And uh, no, he passed away uh, on New Year's Eve. And I, like he was a very elderly man and he'd resigned. 95, I think. Yeah, and, and he'd resigned as Pope almost a decade ago. Um, so it was the first time in more than 600 years that we had two Popes and and the funeral was the first time in more than 600 years that a Pope presided over the funeral of a Pope. Uh, so it was all very unusual. But I think, you know, I, I think a lot has been said about uh, uh, his his legacy. Well, before you go on to talk about his legacy, let's see what the, in, in the UK when they were looking for talking heads to be wheeled out to discuss this. We heard from Jacob Rees-Mogg and I think he's, he's called upon because he's a toff and it's unexpected that a toff is Catholic, maybe. Mm. I don't know. But here he is reacting. The late Pope has been called to heaven. He had a very devout faith. He died as all Catholics wish to die, a provided death. He received uh, the last rites. Um, He was on earth a very saintly figure, so it seems to me, uh, without being presumptuous, that he is likely to have gone to heavenly glory. Heavenly glory. Yeah, well, far be it for me to say where he's gone. I don't know, but I mean, I think he has a very—he had a very interesting story both prior to becoming a, a priest and then rising through the ranks of the Catholic Church, and then while he was at the very highest level within the Catholic Church, his parents were obviously um, German; they were fiercely anti-Nazi, and then as a young boy, he was conscripted into into Nazi youth, a, a tag which I think dogged him for much of his his later career, despite the fact that he had no inclination towards Nazism whatsoever. And um, uh, then when when he and his brother became priests he became very very he was a very strong academic and he was actually quite liberal in the run up to in the 19th up until the 1960s but really? then, the, then the liberalism shifted after there was a, a kind of a student invasion of his lecture halls and he became, he moved from being quite on, on the liberal wing of the Catholic Church to being much more hardline. And then he became very very closely associated with Pope John Paul II. Um, and as as one of his, as Pope John, as one of Pope John Paul II's right hand men, he became kind of the enforcer within the Catholic Church, and I think there was a sense that when he became Pope, that there needed to be some kind of stopgap Pope between Pope John Paul II and another Pope who might be able to go along a different path. And I think that's what a lot of people within the Catholic Church would have hoped. They would have hoped that somebody would would take the Church on on a maybe a less hardline, less strict, more. 
appropriate for our times kind of path. So Benedict was was considered to be that. Um, it hasn't really worked out like that. Uh, um, and then he, I think he took the decision a decade ago that he he wasn't up for it because he's he was an old man. I mean, that's one of the problems with the papacy, of course, is that you tend to be in your seventies when you become the pope, and it's tough for people. Uh, so I mean. I, there are questions about how he handled multiple child abuse cases in Europe, in the developing world and in Ireland. And those questions remain unanswered. And I think ultimately it'll be for other people to decide his legacy and, and, and what impact he had on the world. Um, but, you know, for the first time in a decade, we now only have the one Pope. And I know that perhaps that death might have been eclipsed for you by the passing of a great footballer. Yeah, Pele. Uh, Pele was much mourned all over the world. And again, Pele was 82 years old and his, his, his passing had been widely flagged because he had been unwell for some time. Um, but it, it was really striking. It was one of those moments when, when, when you heard the news. It was like, ah, oh. because certainly when I was a child in the 1970s and 80s, Pele would have been a hugely important feature for anybody who had any interest in football. Who's the equivalent now? Is it Messi oh, or something? Be, it would be Lionel Messi. Mm-hmm. because. But you can always argue about who is the greatest footballer of all time. And uh, But I think what you can't argue about is that Pele will have the legendary status that will be untouchable by anybody else. Like Lionel Messi might have been more skilled but Pele won three World Cups and Pele completely changed the game of football and he made it all about style and skill. And when you look at the footage of Pele in in all his pomp and the goals he scored and the way he played, it was just a phenomenal thing. So I think it's right that, you know, he was on the front page of virtually every newspaper in the world when he died. And I think it's right that he will be remembered as the greatest footballer of all time and the greatest footballer of any era. So anyone else that if you were plugged out of the news cycle, you might have missed? Yeah, Vivian Westwood obviously passed away as well. And she died on the same day as Pele. And uh, like, obviously an amazing fashion designer. But more than that, I think she was a huge cultural force in in Britain in particular in the 1970s. I mean, between herself and um, Malcolm McLaren, they, they styled punk. They didn't necessarily create punk music and they didn't necessarily create the musicians who drove punk music, but they styled punk in the early days and they made it this by in, in part shocking and in part instantly recognisable and accessible style. Um, and I think that's what created the, the cultural force that was punk music. The punk movement, I mean... That was just a fashion that became a marketing opportunity for people. And it's great nowadays to see young people dressed as a punk. But, you know, because it's entered into the iconography of I am a rebel. But for somebody my age to think that it's got any credibility in any way, no, it hasn't. It was just an excuse for people to run around. And then punk music led on to the, 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 the resurgence of ska music in the late 1970s and indie music in the 80s and then the Pixies and Nirvana in the late 80s and the 90s. And you'd, you'd have to wonder how much poorer our world would be without the presence of Vivian Westwood in the London music scene and the London style scene in the 1970s. And I think we would be a much poorer place without her. And it's also worth, I think, noting that she was still working, you know, that she... Very much she, so. And that's phenomenal with a fantastically successful label. Her husband was now the designer. But, you know, she's still having catwalk shows, still producing collections. Extraordinary. So that sort of life force, you'd have to celebrate that.
Okay, so one of the other big things, if you were online, and this is kind of an online story, I guess, rather than anything you might have seen in the news bulletins on RTE or what have you, is that of Andrew Tate and Greta Thunberg and her amazing owning of Andrew Tate on Twitter. Bernice, can you give us a rundown of who Andrew Tate is and then we'll get on to the Greta part of the story then. Okay, well... I was in the very happy position of never having heard of Andrew Tate until the 27th of December when this Twitter spat started. You know, I don't feel bad that I didn't know. I feel the algorithm wasn't interested in, in, in telling me who Andrew Tate is. Because what kind of a guy is he? Because Andrew Tate describes himself as the king of toxic masculinity. That gives you a sense of who he thinks he is. And he is perhaps the most misogynist, vile, objectionable person that I have come across now on on social media. He pumps out these sort of viewpoints about women and his he has a vast, vast audience. Now, I just said social media, but of course, he hasn't actually been on social media because for quite a while, because he was banned from Facebook and Instagram in August uh, for violating Meta's policies on dangerous individuals. But just to say, time he was banned, he'd 4.7 million Instagram followers who were hearing about all his violent and vile uh, viewpoints about women. Stuff like, you know, if a I woman is raped, she yeah, bears some responsibility, yeah, yeah, all exa- that kind of... All that. And he, um, he's banned from YouTube. TikTok has banned him from having an account. But, of course, tellingly, and this, of course, bleeds into the whole idea of how social media cannot be controlled. Because content posted under the hashtag Andrew Tate has been viewed billions of times. Now, he came to public attention first in 2016 when he went into the Big Brother house. He had been a world champion kickboxer at that time. And he was booted out of the Big Brother house because there were allegations that he'd been violent towards a girlfriend. Allegations that he denied. And since then, he has built this persona. The way he makes money, apparently was through things like his Hustler University. His Hustler University teaches boys and young men how to trade in cryptocurrency, how to get rich. He's American. You'll hear from the clip, he sounds American, but he was brought up in Luton with his brother Tristan and more of Tristan later. So what happened was... On the 27th of December, he tweeted this real, you know, braggart, kind of a very elaborate tweet, picture of him. And he said, I have 33 cars. My Bugatti has a eight-liter. He asked Greta as well. Like this well, was, that's the this point. This was aimed at her, It was, it? hello, Greta Thunberg. And so it was a list of some of his cars, picture of him, some big orangey, you know, sports car. Uh, well, it was probably Bugatti. I don't know what it was. And then he said, you know, if you want to know more. And Greta Thunberg replied and she said, very briefly, yes, please do enlighten me. Email me at smalldickenergy at getalife.com. And the Twitter sphere exploded. Blew up because the, it, that tweet so far has had nearly 300 million views, nearly 4 million likes. So it's huge. It's massive. And of course, it seemed like great fun. I remember the, de- the 27th, Fantastic. Great fun. Then you start hearing who Andrew Tate is. He tried to reply with this video of him. Yeah, we have a clip of that here. Let's have a listen. I'm actually mad at Greta, right? Because she doesn't realise she's been programmed. She doesn't realise she's a slave of the Matrix. She thinks she's doing good. Someone has sat her down 
and convinced her to try and convince you to beg your government to tax you into poverty to stop the sun from being hot. He was arrested immediately, virtually, immediately after that video went online. So he started the week by trolling uh, Greta Thunberg and then he was arrested. He was arrested with his brother and two other people in Romania where they live on suspicion of human trafficking, rape and forming an organised crime group. So suddenly, you know, this idiot with his Bugatti, you know, saying all these really horrible things, it gets darker and darker as the week goes on. It is a problem because he has this huge audience. So Andrew Tate isn't just one individual uh, spouting nonsense, hateful nonsense, misogynistic nonsense. He has built up millions of people who for want to hang on every word, who think that what he says is true and right and sticking it to the world and like fair play to him. And that's that's probably the most troubling thing about the whole Andrew Tate story. But I do think that Greta Thunberg showed how you take somebody like this down. And it's not with all the pomposity. Uh, it's with a nine word tweet and bam, it was so he was simple. over. And I thought what was lovely was in the video, that he came back with 10 hours later. It was just so full of bluster. And it's like, oh man, you're just so dumb. You are just so stupid. And every single word that comes out of your mouth in this video is making the whole thing worse for you. It was and I think saying, people relished I that. know you are, but what am I? Exactly. Yeah. But I, I think also what was interesting uh, was that Twitter, you know, Twitter had banned him. He'd been banned in 2017 for misogynistic views and hate speech. Then, and it, you was, know, it took a lot to get banned in 2017. Exactly. Mm. There wasn't banning then. Then Elon Musk takes over and then suddenly, you know, he's back. And that's how we saw this tweet in, in, in December. We will return to that story, I would say, because those charges are pending, I guess. And we could dedicate a whole episode to them, but we will leave it there for the moment. We'll take a break. And after that, we will be discussing some of the other big stories that happened over the Christmas, including George Santos. If you uh, don't know anything about him, you're going to love this one. Welcome back to our alternative episode of In the News where we are bringing you up to speed with all the big news stories that happened over the Christmas and New Year period. And sadly, we started the new year with a death in Cork. Bruna Fonseca was 28 and from Brazil. A qualified librarian, she came to Ireland in the autumn and was working as a cleaner at Cork's Mercy University Hospital. Her colleagues at the hospital have described her as hard-working and diligent. They said they're shocked and saddened by her death. Connor, that's an awful way to start the new year, isn't it? It really is a terrible way to start the new year. I mean, this young woman came to Ireland looking to build a life here, maybe, and uh, it just ended tragically. And, and a man has been charged. And a, and a 20 year old, 28-year-old man, her former partner, has been charged w- with her death. So there's very little we can say about it at this point, but I'm sure it's a story that we'll hear more about as the year progresses. And Bernice, another kind of disturbing story in the south of the country, this yeah. time in County Kerry. Yeah, before I get to that, I, I just want to, 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 to note that last year, unfortunately began in the same way because Ashling Murphy, 
uh, was killed on January the 13th and a man is, will go on trial for her murder. And Women's Aid, which keeps the statistics on this, they said 11, and we, we, you know, we talked about records in the health service, 11 women died in violent circumstances in 2022, the worst year in a decade for violence against women. So, so uh, that's all horribly sobering and let's hope we're not going to have a 2023 record. But what you're referring to there was what happened in uh, Hotel Killarney in County Kerry on New Year's Day. Guard, they initially described it as a melee and we now know, uh, I should say, Hotel Killarney is being used as a centre for refugees and asylum seekers. It was controversy from the start in its usage because uh, there were 400 men moved into that hotel. And look, I think we all know hotels aren't for living in, they're for staying in. These, these men are living there now. Some melee broke out. Four Algerians and four Georgians are now charged in connection with the incident. And there, uh, were, there were stabbing injuries, weren't there? There were. Four people uh, needed hospital treatment. So, of course, now we can't say much more about that. The, the, what they were charged was violent disorder by using or threatening to use unlawful violence. Before you, know, you move on, Bernice, let's, uh, we'll just hear a quick clip. Hotel Killarney is a temporary direct provision centre. It is expected that normal commercial operations will resume there later this year. Some local representatives have expressed concern about how the centre is being managed. They say there are hundreds of men of around a dozen different nationalities being housed together, and this can lead to tensions. That's Colman O'Sullivan from RTE News reporting on that and highlighting something that comes up an awful lot around men in the international protection system. Isn't that the case, Bernice? Uh, yes, and c- communities are very nervous about large congregations of single men. These are men in the Hotel Killarney uh, situation. They're men in their 20s and 30s. What it does, of course, is point to the creaking nature of our uh, asylum uh, process, of our, our, how we are housing people who come here, that hotels are not the place. I suppose when I heard that first, when I heard about the Mali in the hotel, I was thinking the first, my absolute first thought was, God, how have we not heard of more of those happening? Because the tensions, the actual stress these people are under living in those conditions must be absolutely shocking. I just think it must be a pressure cooker. And also those men know that they won't be there for much, very much longer because they're all going to be, you know, they needn't get comfortable in, in Killarney because that hotel is going to revert to tourist needs, um, presumably when the, the, the season kicks in. So where are they going to go? And, and again, that points to just the lack of planning we have. We know this is we know this is coming up because the, the hotels will want their, their properties back for the tourist season and that is something that's really on the horizon. But to move on to something slightly more lighthearted and that is a guy called George Santos who I had not heard of until I saw this. Again, this is another one of those online stories where you might see the name George Santos and wonder who he is. So, Connor, uh, who is George Santos? Yeah, he's a soon-to-be congressman from the Republican Party. He was elected in New York uh, in November in the elections. And it turns out that he's quite the fantasist because uh, um, he has misrepresented his past across multiple levels. So apparently he didn't go to the college that he said he went to. He didn't work in the jobs that he said he had. He once recently posted that 9-11 had claimed the life of his mother. And then a couple of days later, he announced that his mother was five years dead and that he still missed her. Um, so that that would mean that she died you know, quite recently. In fact, she died on December the 23rd, five years ago. Um, and 
there are huge question marks as to what's going on. He's also implicated in a fraud case in Brazil. Like there's all of these weird things swirling around him. And in so many instances, if this was anybody else, it would be game over. He would be he would be out the door as fast as you can imagine it. But he is still clinging to power. And of course, the difficulty is that in, in, in the Republican Party is in huge turmoil and the George Santos story is just a part of that mess. Well, he also threw petrol on the fire by going on Fox News and doing what has been labelled an absolute train wreck or a car crash of an interview. And we have a clip of that. My heritage is Jewish. I've always identified as Jewish. I was raised a practicing Catholic. I think I've gone through this. Even I've not not being raised a practicing Jew, I've always joked with friends and circles, even with in the campaign, I'd say, guys, I'm Jewish. Remember, I was raised Catholic. Jewish, Bernice. How has that gone down? Well, of course it's gone down. Look, he reminds me of like a great big toddler whose face is covered in chocolate <laughs> and the Nutella jar is there open and you say, did you open the Nutella jar? And they say, no. So, I mean, his lies are bizarre. They're piled upon pile. But of course, you know, as Connor said, what it reflects more is the chaos in, in the Republican Party. Look, what's going to happen? Who knows? The Brazilian authorities, apparently when he skited some checks in Brazil, $700 to buy clothes a couple of years ago. His parents are born in Brazil, even though he said they survived the Holocaust. And they did, I suppose, survive the Holocaust by being Brazilian <laughs> being and in living in Brazil. But um, he, he said, yeah, no, no, I did that. And the Brazilian authorities couldn't find him. And of course, he then decided, I know, the best way from hiding from the Brazilian authorities is in fact to run for Congress. So look, that might bring him down. Maybe, who knows? It's a sideshow. The bigger question, of course, is is what's going to happen in the House of Representatives. Yes, and I'm sure we will be in touch with our Washington correspondent, Martin Wall, about that in the coming days and weeks because it is chaos, as you mentioned, Connor. But to finish on something light, let's talk about this great PR exercise that Rolling Stone uh, carried out by listing the 200 best singers and causing quite the controversy by omitting somebody like... Celine Dion felt that she deserved a place, or at least many of her fans felt that she deserved a place. And like whether or not you like her music, and I personally wouldn't be the biggest fan, she certainly has a great pair of lungs in her. And she, <laughs> she is sure a good does. singer. You know, she can hold a tune. And of the of the 200, you'd imagine they would have found a place for her in the top 200 singers of all time. And I think it's important to make the distinction because I read the list with great interest yes. when it was released. It's important to make, like, they're not necessarily saying these are the greatest musical artists of all time. They are saying these are the greatest singers. Oh, they are explicitly saying singers well, because I kind of thought like every they was taking the totality of the person into account. And maybe, and maybe there, obviously there has to be an element of that because Bob Dylan was included in the list. And whatever, you, whatever <laughs> you say about Bob Dylan he, he isn't necessarily the greatest singer like he wouldn't have done well He started well. out trying he, and, and he was a great singer I mean when he sang Lay Lay Delay like he had a great voice but he wouldn't necessarily have done well in The Sound of Music Now he's just mumbling into a microphone uh, and, like, In fairness he's, 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 like an old, he's an older man now and I wouldn't be critical of him but like the, the, I think rather than focusing on who wasn't on the list. I think it's important to acknowledge who was on the list. And of course, the woman who was on top, and I don't think very many people would argue with it, was Aretha Franklin. And of course, Aretha Franklin has an amazing voice. And she certainly deserves, I think, the, the, the number one spot. Couldn't agree more. Bernice, is there anyone on it that you thought should have been further up or should have been left Well, look, out? I mean, you know, poor Celine Dion. If Ozzy Osbourne made it to 112, poor Celine. Don't want to be all by myself. 
Okay, we, we all are not big fans of her music, but we, we recognise she should be in there. I think her heart will go on. <laughs> boom, boom. Oh, well done. That was right there. I can't believe I didn't see it. Connor Pope and Bernice Harrison, thank you very much for joining us. On that note, as the late, great Bill O'Hurley, he would say, we'll leave it there so. And In the News will be back on Monday uh, with Bernice. And if there are any topics or stories that you would like to hear us cover this year or even in the next few weeks or something you think we might have missed, you can always email your suggestions to podcasts at irishtimes.com. Thanks very much. Thanks.